Hello and welcome to the Michael Mamas Show. I'm your host, Michael Mamas, and we're coming to you from Mount Soma, home of the Sri Sameshwara Temple in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And today we're going to talk about uh, the power of prayer, how to maximize the power of prayer. Uh, I think, I think even atheists in that at this point have to recognize that there have been enough statistical studies in that, that it confirms that prayer does have an influence. It does have an effect. And in fact, it's um, even more powerful in larger groups. The larger the group, the more powerful the uh, effect of the prayer. Uh, They've done studies of that sort of thing at major universities throughout the country and you know, based on the p-value, it, it indicates that it's it's not a coincidence. I mean, it's for real; it works. Uh, but the question that we're going to uh, entertain today, what we're going to take a look at today, is uh, how can we maximize that effect? How can we increase that effect? And what are the different things involved? Um, just the one that comes to mind right off the top of my head, you know, is, um, and we've talked about this before, but the difference between, you know, um, power, strength versus intensity. Uh, And I think a lot of times these days, um, there's an inclination uh, in the direction of intensity of prayer. uh, And that usually involves, you know, intense emotion, powerful emotion. But emotion exists on a certain level of existence, you know. And uh, what makes prayer more powerful, however, is to go deeper within. And, of course, some people say, oh, I I was feeling so deep inside of me. You know, I was the emotion was so intense and I, you know, felt my union with God and it even made me cry and all that. Uh, And that's fine. But the thing is, that's that can be more emotionally based uh, so therefore, just more intense, but uh, that doesn't really make the effect of the prayer more powerful. Uh, uh, feeling emotions deeply does not mean we're going to the depth of our being, in other words. So one of the first steps, and there's a whole progression here, but one of the first steps then uh, to increase the power of prayer is to have the ability to come from a deeper place inside, a place that even transcends thoughts, transcends emotion. It's the very depth of your being. It's the kingdom of heaven that dwells within. You know, it's the Christ spirit that dwells within. And uh, the most powerful technique to access that, and it's a form of prayer, but they call, call it meditation. And not all meditations do that. Some meditations enable you to focus and concentrate other meditations uh, uh, can actually program the brain to think a certain way and function a certain way. But we're talking about a meditation now that to increase the power of our prayers that frees the awareness to rest into that inner divinity, that, uh, kingdom of heaven that dwells within that transcendental level, if you will. And so that's step one, how to increase the power of prayer. Uh, Step two is, you know, to do those uh, meditations in groups, all kinds of studies. It works and it's for real. And it certainly makes the prayer more powerful. But now 
that still is just a step. It's just a beginning. And there's a, a whole other thing in uh, Vedic technologies comes right from the ancient seers. Uh, and that is that, uh, well, to say it simply, the space in which a, a meditation or a group or a, a procedure takes place, a prayer procedure, if you will, takes place, uh, is very relevant. Uh, it has a profound effect. And that's pretty obvious, isn't it, that the environment has an effect on the individual. Uh, uh, if you're sitting in a bar somewhere, it feels one way. If you're sitting in a temple, it feels very different, you know. And so the ancient seers had a technology whereby you could build a building, build a structure, build a temple, if you will, that actually resonated with that deepest value, that transcendental level, and facilitated the purity of that, the strength of that, the inner coherence of that. Because what are we talking about when we talk about that? We're talking about the very source of life, the very source of existence, incredibly coherent, incredibly intelligent, the source of all the intelligence and creativity that built this whole universe, you know? So if we can create a structure, and this is the area called Sabhatyaved, uh, sometimes just referred to as Vastu, um, uh, how to build a structure that brings that value, that amplifies that value. Uh, uh, and so then if prayer is performed in that environment, obviously the prayer becomes more powerful. There have been statistical studies for that as well. Now, it gets even more profound than that. Because, you know, it's an interesting thing. In the English language, uh, there's, there's some languages that are called pure languages. And there's other languages that, you know, just changed over time. And they may have some roots in, you know, like ma, mama, mommy, whatever. That sound ma has sort of a universal application in different languages. So there's something inherent in the nature of the physiology that it resonates with what we would call a, a pure language. But in the English language, it's said that there are only uh, two words that really carry all the power of the meaning uh, of the word. Uh, in other languages like Sanskrit, uh, the Vedic language of Sanskrit, every word, every name resonates with the form. It's there's a connection there so that they're not just uh, the words aren't just, you know, hollow, if you will. And they might refer to something, but they actually carry the energy of that thing. And in the English language, there are only two words like that, I've been told. And that's hallelujah and amen. But imagine a language because that carries all that meaning. Every word carries that power, that strength. And uh, uh, that's called a pure language. You might call it, if you will you know, the language of God. But there's also a scientific correlation to that whole thing. You see, somewhere along the line, I think even in the Middle Ages when science started um, emerging and started being recognized, uh, the, the actual, the, the, at least in the West, the spiritual movements, the church and that started feeling threatened by it. And so they even um, punished people if they 
got too scientifically oriented, feeling like it was uh, uh, anti-religion, anti-spirituality. And to this day, to some extent, that endures, you know. But imagine, imagine that if we lived in a world where science and spirituality and the union between the two, the connection between the two became harmonious. And so we started to understand the science of Vastu. We started to understand the science of Stapatyavit. We started to understand the science of linguistics and what a pure language means and the power contained within a pure language. Uh, uh, and now imagine then that our forms of prayer, oftentimes in the, in, you know, we might call those ceremonies or something, but imagine that those forms of prayer were a technology deeply rooted, not only in spirituality, but also in science. The connection was there and it was pure. And then imagine that those technologies, and we'll call them technologies, those prayers, you see, were performed in a Vastu building, the Sapati Veda building, a building that actually embodied and resonated with that transcendental value and facilitated its welling up in an undistorted manner through all the different levels of creation, you see? And so that's the next step. But now there's uh, one more step that I, I'd like to mention, and that is um, a technology, and I've mentioned it, I think, briefly in some of the previous podcasts, the, the technology of what's called an enlightened city, uh, so that the entire environment, the whole city, the whole space was designed in accord with the Sapativate, so the whole thing would resonate with that unified field level, that divine level, God, the Christ spirit, whatever you want to call it, Chaitanya, um, um, so many names, but it's all the same one thing, really. And so imagine then that you could build a whole city. Well, what they say, what the ancient seers say is that you can build a structure like that, a city like that. It's a small city. It's not a big, we're not talking something the size of New York City, but you can build a small city like that, that radiates that power, that power of prayer, if you will, so much that one of those places is enough to purify and harmonize the entire environment, even an entire continent. And uh, uh, boy, that can sound hard to believe, can it? See, we're so used to looking on the surface of life and, oh, you know, we here's a good law and that's a bad law and we need to change this way and change that. But that's staying on the surface. It becomes more intellectual constructs and debates than, than anything that has to do with a technology of prayer, if you will, a technology that brings that deepest value and wells it out through all the different levels of existence. That, even though it's there, it's been in, the, been in the Vedic literature for thousands of years, it's ignored because people have become identified, you know, with a, a different paradigm. Now, one interesting thing is this, you know, in uh, uh, Cambodia, right, Scotty, Angkor Wat, it's a big, huge temple complex and it's ancient, uh, but it's all overgrown and uh, for some reason the people, abandon it. And a number of people say, and if, if I'm not an expert by any means on uh, Stapati Ved, we have experts in that field in South India that we rely on heavily. 
But uh, uh, from what I've seen, if you look at the aerial views and stuff, that well could have at one time been an enlightened city. Uh, but now it's all overgrown. It's falling apart. And so the question you see, this is all very interesting. The question then becomes, well, if that was an enlightened city, why would it reach its demise? You'd think they had this thing. It was radiating all this coherence, this harmony for all of life. But if you look at the history of Angkor Wat, and again, I just, I'm no expert on the history of Angkor Wat, but these are things I've been told and read. Uh, two things I know have happened. One of them is that that temple was originally a Vedic temple. And then one of the kings who came along or what have you um, decided they wanted to kind of convert it and make it into a Buddhist temple. Now, there's nothing wrong with Buddhism. There's nothing wrong with Hinduism. There's nothing wrong with these different things, but they're different. And so if you de design, now think about this. If you design a Vastu, Sapatyaved technology building structure, and it resonates with a particular value. It's a little bit like if you have a Porsche. The carburetor for a Porsche is very different than the carburetor for a Ford F-150 truck. And so the Ford F-150 can run fine. Call that Buddhist if you want. The uh, uh, Angkor Wat can run fine. Call that a Porsche if you want. Or the other way around, doesn't matter. But that doesn't mean you can take the carburetor out of a Ford F-150 and replace the carburetor in a Porsche. It doesn't work. And so just fundamentally, if, if that was done, and it was done out of, you know, ignorance, really, not understanding, and nevertheless, the whole thing gets compromised. It doesn't work anymore. Now, here's another very interesting thing, and that is that... Uh, my understanding is that the king decided that he was going to use the main temple in Angkor Wat as his mausoleum. And, you know, a lot of you probably know that in Vastu, there's light comes into the very tip and shines down through uh, into that like inner sanctum, if you will. And uh, he decided that that's where he went, where he wanted to be buried. Now, that's not what an enlightened city is designed to do. The, the, the heart of the enlightened city is not designed to be a, a mausoleum, you know? So right away, the whole thing collapses. Now, it gets very interesting because then the, the anthropologist or the archaeologists and that ask, well, why did Angkor Wat fall? What happened? Because all of a sudden it just became abandoned. Everybody left and it was this incredible place. Why would people do that? We just named the real main reason, the fundamental reason. But when archaeologists, whoever, and this is fine, but but it's not the real reason, you know, it's the effect. It's the cause is what we just described. It's the compromise of that technology. And the more powerful the technology is, the compromising of it becomes even more powerful of a negative effect, you see? So looking at the surface saying, oh, well, maybe there were wars or maybe they didn't have enough water or there's drought, who knows? But all those are more superficial. The fundamental thing would be the fact that the coherence got undermined and you're dealing with something more powerful. And that's why I say, you know, if you're going to run off the road, you're better off in a little toy wagon than a Porsche, you know? Uh, uh, and so 
Point being, these technologies are delicate. Now, there's another thing. It's like, okay, wait a minute here. If there's a technology like that, and it's so great, and it heals the whole planet, enlightens the world, you know, no, no more world wars, world peace, on and on. Why haven't we built it? Well, I, that's a question I really, when I first heard about these enlightened cities and the technology and how it's all cognized right from Amuni Mayan, you know, Brahma Maya, uh, uh, like that whole Vishwakarma, cosmic architect kind of idea. If something like that exists, why, did, why haven't we built it? What's the deal? And I wondered that. It just didn't make any sense to me. In fact, that's... I just thought, you know, what better thing to dedicate my life to than building that, you know? And uh, 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 there we have a huge amplifier, a huge something that maximizes the power of prayer to bring out life in its fullness, its abundance. And it was only decades later after I first heard about it and after I started building this uh, because that's what Mount Soma is. It's all based on that ancient technology, you see. Uh, but it's then that I started to realize and I learned there's a basic principle. And, and my teacher actually talked about it decades ago when he walked in the room one day and sat down in front of us all and he held up a rose. And he said, when the blossom gets bigger, he said, the thorns just naturally get bigger. He said, I'm wondering what to do about the thorns. The principle being positive attracts negative. If you bring out a positive value, such a powerful positive value, it's like there's a global coherence, a group coherence, a consciousness that views the world a certain way and sees this new influence as either bogus or threatening or just out and out wrong. But for one reason or another, they attack it. Positivity attracts negativity. So negativity inhibits the ability to manifest one of these structures. And uh, I, I've heard, you know, I had to connect the dots because when I started building this, everything was great and it was going great and everything was great. But then I started noticing, gosh, these obstacles. I've never seen obstacles like this. People come from all over who've been in business or whatever and they say, never seen obstacles like this, it's just ridiculous. Positive is attracting negative. There's an opposition there. That's why nobody's ever built it, you see? And so what it requires then is a steadfast commitment to the fundamental principles. Because I have had people, you know, we're building a, a Vedic temple. I have had people come here and say, well, why can't we do a Buddhist temple? Or why can't we put a church in the middle of it? Or uh, uh in the village we lived in in India, this is how we did it. So why can't we do it there? Or okay, this is a Shiva temple. Why can't we stick a Vishnu Murti in it or whatever? We have to honor the technology that we've been given by the ancient seers, how to do it, and we have to stick to it. And it requires incredible dedication, incredible commitment, steady hand on the rudder. And it meets with tremendous opposition. It does. Uh, but we will not quit. We will continue. We're going to get this thing built. And so my appeal would be, you know, we're talking about building a number of buildings here. And it's going to be millions, tens of millions of dollars. And 
what I'm asking is if people can donate just a little bit to help, that's great. But if anybody out there knows a billionaire or anything like that, ask them to take a look. There's a rational basis to this whole thing. It all makes sense. And I'm just presenting the, the, the rudimentary uh, components of it, I think, in this little podcast. But I'm sure there's a visionary out there. I'm sure there's a billionaire out there that would, you know, incrementally say, okay, let's take a step and see how it goes. And we'll take another step and see how it goes. And let's see if we can get this whole thing funded. And I volunteer to be the tip of that arrow. And it's not easy. I, a lot of opposition, a lot of obstacles. Uh, uh, but see, it also has to do with timing. There's a whole uh, field of Vedic knowledge, um, uh, uh, Purushet knowledge called uh, Donner Vade. Donner Vade is, um, it, it, see, you have the, the Veda and then you have the Upaveda. Upaveda means usually translated, translated lesser Veda, really though meaning it's the correlations to the structure of the Veda, which is in the uh, Upurushaya, not unmanifest. It's the correlations to that within the manifest, the Purushaya. And so Dhanurveda correlates to, you know, you have, you have Ayurveda, which correlates to Rig Veda. You have Dhanurveda, which correlates to uh, Yajurveda. And Yajurveda is like the technology. And so Dhanurveda is sort of like a, a technology, but Donner Veda can be translated as it talks about bow. It means, I think Donner actually means bow, bow and arrow. And so the idea is that you pull back the bow. What does that mean? You go into that transcendental level and then you release the arrow and it flies and, me, and, me, and attains the goal. And, and uh, uh, that there's a time dependency on that, you see? It can't be done at any time. Uh, nature, the environment has to support it. You can't go out, for example, and play a game of tennis with no lights in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, but now we're at a stage, and this also is knowledge provided by the ancient seers. We're in a stage now, a phase transition, where the time is right to pull back that bow and release it. And we can bring a forth an enlightened age. It's all infinitely correlated, you see? So please, if, if, if you can help or if you know anybody out there that can help, you can go to MountSoma.com or you can go to MichaelMamas.net and look through. You'll see a place where you can find a link to uh, the Sri Sameshwar Temple and make a donation. And if you know a, a billionaire or have any leads that can get us connected with a billionaire that is a visionary that might be open to taking a look at this, pass the information along to them, pass the information along to us. If you could help us make that connection, it would be great. We can help the world. This can be a phase transition for the world. It's not coming from me. I'm not making it up. It's coming from the ancient seers. Okay. So really that's all I have to say. Scotty, anything you want to add or is that no. it? Yeah, that's good. Thank you everybody. Uh, and please, if you can give us a hand, you take care. Talk to you next week.